I was eavesdropping. <laughs> uh, and what's funny is uh, I, Rebecca is always the one in our family who's known for eavesdropping. We'll be in a restaurant, and uh, she's not meaning to. She's just curious. And so we'll be sitting at a restaurant, and we'll be talking. And all of a sudden, she'll go silent, and she's still. And I'll say, you're listening to the people beside us, aren't you? And she'll say, yeah. <laughs> so what did they say? No, that's not what we do. We don't do that. Um, so I was uh, in a restaurant reading, and uh, all of a sudden, that, right beside me, a Bible study assembled of young people. And I was thinking, oh, wow, this is great. I get to be a fly on the wall and just kind of like listen in. And, uh, and I did. And it was started off, they were looking at a passage where Jesus, uh, it's the baptism of Jesus. He comes up from the water, and then the voice of the Heavenly Father speaks and says, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. And I was like, this is going to be good. All right, this is fantastic. I'm going to see where this goes. And so the Bible study leader, who was a young guy, he was probably you know, 20-ish, he, uh, he said, wow, that's fantastic. And he, and he asked the question, he said, what would you give to hear God say that about you? Now, that's when the theologian, the, the theological nerd inside of me kicks in. I was like, Right, he's talking about Jesus there. He's never going to say that about you. It's, he's talking about Jesus, the, the, the unique Son of God, coming up, and God says, this is my Son. It's, he's singling him out from all the people on the planet. He's never going to say that to you. And, uh, but that's not the part that bothered me the most. It was the next question he asked. He said, you know, he asked the question, what would you give to hear God say that to you? And then the question after that was, what have you done this week for God? With the implication that if you said, if you did something for God, he would say that to you. And inside of me, I was thinking, no, don't tell them that you're putting them under the law. I have Jesus who has died for me so that apart from anything I do, I've been adopted into the family of God apart from anything. It's by grace. It's by faith. It's not because of what I do. And I thought about it, uh, you know, afterwards, and I thought about that for years. And I've, I've come to this realization that though I want to be the kind of pastor that is talking to people who've never heard about Jesus, who haven't had nothing to do with church, and to tell them about Jesus so they want to come and be a part of, you know, the, a church body, what I find is that through the years, my main ministry is to people who grew up in the church who don't really understand the gospel of Jesus. That's been my main ministry for my whole life, for my whole ministry life, is talking to people who don't really, don't really know what God is like, who don't really have an understanding of what Jesus did on the cross, who really are not uh, clear about what Christianity is all about. In fact, just this past week, I was meeting with a guy, and uh, it was a great conversation, but this is what he communicated to me. He said, I grew up in, my church, in a church from eight years old on, and this guy's he, he's past the half century mark, as there are a lot of people here in the villages. And uh, he said, and it was just a couple of years ago that I really came to understand the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That just a couple of years ago, he said, I spent all this time in the church and I don't think I was really a Christian. This is a big deal because we, we're not clear. And most of the assumptions that we have about what it means to be a Christian are not really culturally, you know, the culture, the assumption we have are not really what the Bible says. Uh, teaches about what it means to be a Christian. So we're talking about that this morning. I think this is a, a, an important passage for doing that, a, an incredibly important passage for talking about this. And part of that is because uh, of who Jesus stands up to 
in this passage and who he stands up for in this passage. And it was exactly the opposite of what they thought he was going to do. And for many of us, it's the exact opposite of what we think that Jesus would do. So we're going to look this morning at Matthew chapter 21, uh, closing out our series on the, the parables. And we're going to look at the parable of the tenants or what's called sometimes the parable of the, the wicked tenants. And so, as we read in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 33. Hear another parable, Jesus said. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the, the Jewish leaders who were there said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the crowds held him to be a prophet. Uh, most people... Uh, a lot of people that I talk to, maybe most people that I talk to, have this uh, deep sense that God could never use them. And uh, some of that has to do with how they grew up and what they grew up hearing uh, in uh, most of them in the church. Probably they grew up hearing a lot of religion and hearing a lot of law. And uh, they would say that made them feel guilty all the time. And so what that meant was whenever they thought about sharing their faith or doing something for Jesus, that felt hypocritical. So they really didn't do things for Jesus. And then at the same time, uh, because they felt guilty, they felt like God was far away from them and must be scowling upon them because they weren't keeping the rules. And so what that ended up doing is it shut down real obedience because they felt like, you know, I, I, I can't really do these things uh, because I'm being hypocritical. And then it also misdirected them from real obedience because they're trying so hard to keep these, uh, some rules they imagine they have to keep that they don't really do the things that Jesus has really called us to do in the world. But then eventually something connects and something clicks and, and they realize, wait, the way that I thought about God is very different. So I was, uh, had the opportunity several weeks ago to talk to a lady. She's not here in the villages. She's in another state. She's 60. She's lived her life growing up in church. And uh, at age 60, she's doing something she never, ever, ever thought she would do. She's teaching a Bible study. And uh, to hear her talk about it, she's just completely flabbergasted she's doing this because 
She said, I'm not a scholar. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a theologian. I don't even know stuff. And so what in the world am I doing leading a Bible study? And she just kind of fell into it. And this is how she fell into it, right? Fell into it. Is a so after COVID, she had some friends in her hometown that were a little bit younger. She's a school teacher, and, and she probably had taught some of them when they were younger. Uh, but she's got, there's about 20, a 20-year 20 difference between them in age, but they really love this lady. And so after COVID, they all got together, and they're sitting around, and they're drinking wine, and they're talking, and they have a really great time. And one of them said, we should do this more often. And one of them said, we should do this more often. Let's do a book club. So they decided we're going to do a book club. And because this lady, uh, this, this woman that I know, we'll just call her Julie, uh, Julie is a, an English teacher in, in one of the schools. They said, why don't you pick a book for us? And so they just left that on Julie. And uh, Julie's going, I don't know what book to pick. And so she said, let me think about it and I'll get back to you. So Julie went home and she's thinking, okay, do we do classic literature like Jane Austen? Should we do a modern self-help book? So she's walk, kind of walking around her house and she notices on the side table beside her couch a copy of Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life, which is a very popular book, came out in 2002. It had been sitting on her side table for 15 years and she'd never opened it or looked at it. And she said, that's the book. So she picked it up and she got everybody to order a copy. And so Rick Warren has all this, you know, people buying books uh, again after you know, two, 20 years. And uh, so they, they get together and all these women that are in the, the group are a little bit floored. They'd never read a Christian book. Uh, all of them went to church. Most of them had not studied the Bible. And so they start reading this Rick Warren book. And every week they'll read a part of it, come in and talk about it. And it was fantastic. They were growing. And then they finished that book. And they said, what, what should we do now? And, and so Julie said, well, I guess we could study a, a book of the Bible. And so they decided they were going to study the book, a book of the Bible. And so they said, Julie, can you lead us? And Julie's never led a Bible study in her life. She doesn't feel confident to do this at all. But she decided... Okay, I think this is what God's calling me to do. And so she started this Bible study. And she said, can you imagine me leading a Bible study? And the, the, act, the actual answer is, no, actually, I couldn't imagine that. But I'm glad that God is doing that in her life and doing that through her. Uh, and I find that most of us are kind of in that same boat. It's like, I don't think God could use me because, you know, I've, I've failed, I've messed up, I'm not even sure God could accept me. And so this is a very important week for us because we're talking about the end of this week and it's Easter. And Jesus died on what we're going to, on Friday night that's coming up this week. He died on a cross. And what the Bible teaches us is that Jesus died on a cross for our sins to make us right with God. All of our sins were placed upon Jesus. He died the death that we should have died for our sins. He didn't have any sins himself. The only reason he died was for our sins. And he also lived a perfect life as he lived here on the earth and loved people perfectly and loved his father perfectly. And that is also counted as ours. So God counted him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might have the righteousness of God given to us, the righteousness of Jesus. That's fantastic. But even when we know that, we really struggle. So we, and every day we have to hear this gospel message over and over and every week because we fall, we are quick to slide into this kind of sense that God won't accept me unless I do all the things I'm supposed to be doing. But that was never it. It was never it from the first. And when Jesus went into Jerusalem, they weren't holding up their trophies and saying, Jesus, here are all the things we did for you. They're saying, you've come in, we're celebrating you because of all the things you have done for us, and we've watched it. We've watched you. 
So the, the week that we're celebrating is not, about all the, it's not about us doing anything for God. It's all about God doing something for us. And that's what we're talking about. Um, we're going to talk about who Jesus is, who's in and out of this thing, and what it means. And you'll have an outline up here. First point is Jesus, is, he loves people who are in need. So step back into our passage. Jesus tells a parable. And if the, uh, if the interpretation of the parable wasn't completely obvious to you, let me walk you through it so you get all the pieces that are here. It is in the parable, the owner of the vineyard represents God. And he says he's gone away because that's our experience, it seems like, of God, is sometimes he feels very distant. The vineyard is an Old Testament image for the people of God. Not a place, but it's an image for the people of God. And it represented largely the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites. But it wasn't just people who were ethnically Jewish, because uh, the, the leaders that are being talked about here, they're ethnically Jewish, but they, they refers to them as a different category, is they're called the tenants who are in this particular thing that are put in charge. The servants that are here that get beaten and, and killed, those represent the prophets of the Old Testament, including John the Baptist. And then the son here in the parable represents Jesus. And we read in Matthew chapter 21, verse 37, finally, the owner of the, the vineyard, uh, the, the landowner who represents God, sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. And so this is where we're picking up, right? At this point where Jesus is coming into the political and religious epicenter of uh, Israel, of Judah. Jesus is coming in and it is a celebration. It's like Kansas a state or somebody winning the national championship. Sorry for UNC people. But uh, it's like winning. It was Kansas State, right? Did I remind you? Kansas? Yeah. So, so, see, you can tell. I grew up in a family of football. So, um, so Kansas, when they win the national championship and go back and everybody's celebrating, it's like a ticker tape parade. So pom-poms are going. That's the palm branches. They're laying cloaks on the ground. That's uh, the uh, red carpet. And they're shouting here, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the whole scene is absolutely electrifying. As crowds go before Jesus, crowds go after Jesus, and they're ushering him into the city. Now, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? Well, one of the things that they say is, uh, when they're asked, why is all this going on? They say, he's, he's the prophet from Galilee, Nazareth in Galilee. And they held him in high honor. So what have you been doing? He's a prophet which means they've been watching him perform miracles to restore life to people. So there's a lady uh, at one point who has a, a bleeding disorder. She's been bleeding for 20 years, and I can't imagine what that was like for her. Actually, I, I know somebody who could help me imagine that. I, I, I knew a lady who struggled with interstitial cystitis, which meant she always felt like she had to go to the bathroom, and this ruled her life. She couldn't go on long trips because she was afraid she wouldn't be able to get to a bathroom. She was constantly at home. She's, it just shut down her life. And so here's this woman who comes with a 20-year bleeding disorder, and she sees Jesus coming to the crowd, not at this point, but an earlier episode. And he's coming to the crowd, and she thinks, if I just touch the hem of his robe, and she reaches out and touches him. And it says in the text that she felt in herself at that moment her body was healed. So my friend who had interstitial cystitis, if she had touched Jesus that way for the first time in 20 years, she would feel free. I'm free of having to go to the bathroom all the time. I'm free to go out. So what Jesus did was give her back her life, this woman. 
There's another story where Jesus is in a, a small town and there's a funeral procession that's taking place and there's this widow, this recently widowed woman. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have other kids. Her only son has passed away. They're taking him out in the coffin and she knows my life is about to change and this is going to be really difficult. And it was for widows at that point in a way that it's not today. There was no insurance. There was nothing to live on. So how is she going to take care of herself? And Jesus came up and put his hand on the casket. The young man sits back up and he gave her back her life figuratively, but he gave this young man back his life literally. And then there's another episode where there's a man who is uh, lowered through a roof. Jesus is, is teaching in a setting, you know, maybe not this biggest spot, but all of a sudden the tiles and things from the roof and from the ceiling are being pulled away. A man on a mat who's been paralyzed is lowered in front of them all, and Jesus speaks to the man, and he does two things. One is he, he heals the man and gives him back his life physically. He can get up and work. He can go walk. He can do these things. But he also gives him eternal life, not just restoring his physical life, but he forgives his sins and says, son, your sins are forgiven. So he gives him blanket eternal life forever at that moment. Now, this is, fat. this is fantastic. So when Jesus is coming in and they're shouting and they're yelling, there are people in the fest, at the Passover in Jerusalem who probably saw some of these things firsthand. Or they talk to these people and they see Jesus coming. They know who it is. And they're out yelling, Jesus, we love you. We love you. Come into the city. Come to the throne. Go, Jesus. Go, go do this. It's electrifying. Now, as we're talking about this, there's something else that's going on which made this a very important moment for all of them, is that the Jewish leaders would have had nothing to do with any of these people. The woman with the bleeding, the Jewish leaders wouldn't go and put hands on her, because, wouldn't come anywhere near her because they were afraid that they would become ceremonially unclean if we even touched her, right? The, man, the, 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 the casket of the young man, they wouldn't have gone near that because if they got near the casket, well, they become unclean. And then they can't go into the presence of God. They go into the temple area. They can't go and show off. And then when Jesus heals this man and forgives his sins, gives him eternal life, well, at that point, they get enraged with Jesus for claiming he can do that. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus effectively says, you're right. Only God can forgive sins. Watch me. And does it. And he heals the guy to prove it. So as we go through this, this is something very different because Jesus... Uh, draws near, and he has power. The Jewish leaders wouldn't draw near. They didn't have power, and so Jesus comes to them, and they look at him coming to the temple, and they think, this is going to be a better world. Go, Jesus, to the throne. <laughs> Please save now. Please go and do this. There's a, a preacher who said, Jesus is not one more prophet, which is what they call him, He's not one more prophet who reveals God. He's the God that all the prophets were trying to reveal. He's that God. So if G Jesus said this, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when you see Jesus going up to the person with the, uh, being touched by somebody with a bleeding disorder and that person's healed and Jesus turns around because he knows she's ashamed of this, right? She touched a Jewish rabbi, what people consider to be a Jewish rabbi, and she wasn't supposed to, knowing that it would make him clean. And when he turns and rounds, he says, I know power went out from me. And this woman knows she's going to get caught. So she says, it was me. And she was afraid. And Jesus says to her, your faith has healed you. Coming to me didn't make me unclean. 
coming to me made you clean. It healed you, right? When we see Jesus doing that, we're seeing the compassion and love that the Father in heaven has for us too. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God doesn't withdraw from us. He draws near to those who come to him in faith. So he didn't just give them back their lives. And, you know, this is the, the point of the, the story here in some ways. He didn't just give them back their lives. He doesn't just give us back our, our lives. But the passage is very clear that he's coming to give his life for us. Not just give our lives to us, but give his life for us. And he says very clearly here in this passage that the son of the landowner is going to be killed, which means Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him. He's not surprised. He's been predicting this all along. This is going to happen. He, and the, the thing that f- floors me is not only that he knew it was coming, but he could have stopped it. He controlled wind. He controlled weather. He controlled storms. He controlled demons. He can control molecules. On the night he was betrayed, in just a few nights from now that we're going to celebrate a lot of churches, uh, Maundy Thursday, when Jesus is arrested, the first time he speaks, the soldiers are bowled over by the power of his words. He could have stopped them. But he didn't, because it was the mission. That was the purpose, to come and to die for his people to uh, redeem us. So the parable, in the main, is about God's total commitment to redeem and rescue his people and to bring about our greatest good. And the gospel is not an offer, it's a declaration. Jesus has accomplished this, and he has done this. We believe it or we don't, but it's a declaration. This has happened. And what it means also in the midst of this is, uh, is he's come to redeem and rescue his people, but it also means that uh, he's going to remove all that stands in the way. And that's a group of people that are here, and they've been here for most of the book of Matthew, and it's talked about in every single one of the Gospels, is the opposition that Jesus got from the, the Jewish religious leaders constantly. They were standing against Jesus. And, uh, you know, Jesus, as he's coming into the city and the, the, uh, for the triumphal entry, he's already started healing people. And the Jewish leaders come to him and say, Under what a, by whose authority are you doing these things? Right? They're opposing him. And so they're trying to stop him. And I was trying to think, what's the image that comes into my mind for that? They're trying to stop Jesus. It's like when we hear about relief aid workers being attacked. You know, there's something dastardly about, you know, attacking uh, a country. There's something dastardly about attacking civilians. There's something, it seems like, even worse if there are people who are coming in just for the purpose of helping, and they're attacked. And this is what's going on with Jesus. We feel a sense of outrage about this. And, so, and that's the reason Jesus is telling this parable, is he's ter- telling the parable so that the Jewish leaders could step outside of themselves and look objectively. Look objectively at what they were doing. And so in Matthew 21, verses 40 to 41, we read, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, when the son is killed, when, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him and the fruits uh, in their season. Give him the fruits in their season. So they saw it clearly, and they condemned themselves in it. And so he's saying, he talks about bringing those wretches to a miserable death. 
And for us, uh, for me, there's something about me that rubs me the wrong way with that. I'm kind of like, that doesn't sound like Jesus. He says, consider the lilies. You know, Jesus says nice, happy things. And uh, he doesn't talk this way. That doesn't sound like Jesus. And the response is, oh, yes, it does. <laughs> note, where, note where he's coming back to. He's coming back to his own vineyard. And the vineyard doesn't rep- represent grapes in a place. It's, it really represents people. And Jesus is concerned about his people and uh, bringing redemption to them in the world despite the opposition of those who would seek to oppose him. He's going to do it. And in order to bring this about, he's going to have to remove, he's going to end up removing those obstacles and even having to face them. And he's going to judge the people who stood in his way and tried to shut the door to heaven in people's faces because Jesus has come to restore the joy that God intended for us at first. That's why Jesus came. This has been a couple of months ago now. In our house, uh, we live on the golf course, formerly known as the Miona Lake Golf Course. Um, it's not really used anymore, uh, except by birds and uh, sand spurs mainly. And uh, one day I was in the back of our house and I was looking out at the dead golf course and then coming into the distance, I saw movement and a bushy tail, and it didn't take me long to realize that is a fox. It's a, a red fox just kind of like trotting through the field, as happy as he could be. I know I've heard that when they come close to your building, they, they have rabies, but he didn't look like he had rabies, right? So he's kind of like trotting through the field, and I'm watching him, and I realize he's going to come between my house and the house that's beside me. I want to go see him on the other side of the house. So as I'm trucking it through the house, I yelled out for Rebecca. I said, Rebecca, come here, come here. And so I opened the door and stepped out, and she's following right behind me. And I say, right there. And we could see the little bushy tail as it came to the end of our yard, went across the road and into the field, probably near your house. I don't know, something that way. And, uh, and so why did I do that? Because I wanted her to share in the joy of the thing that I was experiencing. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have lived in eternity past in glory and joy and love together. Why did God create us? To put us under rules? Yes, to put us under, no, not to put us under rules. The reason he created us was to bring us into the joy as an, overf- as an overflow of his gratitude and his grace and his love to create us to be able to enter into his joy, to experience what he's been experienced in eternity past. And we get a picture of this in the life of Jesus, is when Jesus is baptized and he is brought up the voice comes from heaven and he singles jesus out and says come here and look at this this is my son whom i love with him i'm well pleased again at the transfiguration when jesus glows and they see peeking through the flesh the glory of 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 his deity the voice of the father speaks again and says this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So what's he doing? He's calling our attention to the thing that pleases him most, which is the Son. And he's inviting us into that. And Jesus is inviting us into the joy of the Father and that relationship that he shares with the Father. And he's inviting us to share in the Holy Spirit, which he's, en- which he's enjoyed for eternity past. That's why he created us. And that has been broken by sin. And Jesus has come into the world to restore that. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders, the teacher, the chief priests, all of them were getting in the way of that. 
Now, what they would have said about why they were getting in the way of it was because they were trying to protect people from Jesus. But that was just rhetoric. And Jesus calls them out later. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says that the Jewish leaders weren't entering heaven and they were slamming the door in, in other people's faces and preventing them from entering. And then in chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, he, he explains why they do this. The Jewish leaders do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the best seats in the synagogue and the titles other people use for them. They dress the part. And, the, and so they eventually arrest Jesus. So what Jesus is saying is they love the honor. Now what's fascinating about this, John Stott has this great quote where he says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. That's the essence of sin. Is we want for ourselves what belongs only to God. And while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. So what he's communicating to us is this, is when people say, I want honor for myself instead of giving it to Jesus, he's saying that's sin. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how many rules you keep. It is possible to keep all the right rules for all the wrong reasons, right? So the man I was telling you I met with this past week and was chatting with him a little bit, uh, he said that when he was growing up that his church was really all about the way that you looked and your appearance. That's what it was growing up for him. And so um, he talked about the way you cut your hair, what you wore. He said that's what his parents were. And the reason is, is it's very easy to convince yourself uh, that if you look good on the outside and if other people think well of you, you must be doing really well spiritually. And what other people think about you, that must be what God thinks about you as well. It's easy to make that leap. So they would say it was about being seen. Like, we're never enough for God. That's what, the scripture, sa- that's what we, the scripture says. But instead of looking to Jesus, we look to our own efforts, our own works, our own uh, uh, reputations, the way that people see us and interact with us. And it's easy for us to get that sensation, hey, I am really uh, doing better than other people. And so what the Jewish leaders here were doing, Jesus says, is they were putting burdens on the backs of other people. And when you look at the passage, who is Jesus standing with and who is Jesus standing against? Who is Jesus standing for and who is Jesus standing against? He's talking about the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. And he says in chapter 21, verse 32, John came to show you the way to righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And so what Jesus has just done is he's saying, I'm standing with the people who have faith, who are following me, and not the people who are following their own honor. They're going to have the kingdom taken from them, and it's going to be given to a different group of people to people who have failed, to people who have botched it. It's not the scholar, it's not the expert, it's not the professional. It's the person who has failed over and over and over and acknowledges acknowledges that to Jesus and to God and says, say, say, I need you. 
I need you because I don't have this on my own. And to me, this is really good news because I stink at life. I do. I stink as a dad. I stink as a husband. I stink as a friend. I stink as a pastor. I stink as a, a driver on the road, right? I'm, I'm not good at life. I had a student years ago, and if you'll pardon the French, uh, we were going to make a T-shirt for our, our ministry that said uh, Jesus and the gospel because we all suck at life because uh, we kind of do. We're terrible. Um, ask, your, uh, ask the people who know you. And I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon because he's acknowledging this. No matter how much we try to clean up our lives, we can't. So Charles Spurgeon said this, I remember when I resolved never to sin again. I sinned before I had done my breakfast. Right? We do. This is the way we live. We have no righteousness of our own. And uh, what the Pharisees were doing were pretending that we can and we do. So holding forth rules that just made people feel guilty. God can't accept me until I get my life in order. And what my life is about is about trying to get my life in order. But when you realize that Jesus is the one who brings you into God, regardless of whether or not your life is order, it changes the way you live in the world, and it changes your expectations of other people. So years ago, I had a woman that I had gotten to know, and uh, we had kids that were kind of the same age, and her, except she had a couple of older ones, and they had begun to maybe rebel a little bit against her. And so she did what a lot of us as parents do. Uh, she got tighter in all of her rules and was trying to, like, I'm going to force you into conformity. I'm going to force this upon you. And so it was damaging the relationship with them, and she was really upset and really frustrated, like, what am I supposed to do here? Uh, because they won't listen to me, and they won't do the things I'm telling them to do. And so I just talked to her about it a little bit, and, you know, what she was trying was not working at all. So I ended up asking her a question. I said, did, asked her, D do you, have you made a lot of mistakes in your life? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, has God used those mistakes in uh, your life to show you your need of Jesus? And she said, oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I said, do you think that your children need to make mistakes so that they can understand their need of Jesus and won't just turn into good little Pharisees. And she sat there for a moment. She said, okay, explain that to me. I said, the only reason that I believe in Jesus is because Jesus has come to me. It's not because I'm good. He came and found me out. I have no righteousness of my own. But one of the things that Jesus used in my life for me to see how much I need him is my own brokenness my sins, my errors, my failures, I would never have believed in him if I had not gone the path that I had gone. And this is true for the people that we love. We have to be patient because sometimes as God is doing something that takes our, the people we love down a very, very difficult path. Um, but we don't know the end of it. And God may take our children, he may take our siblings, he may take people we love down a very, very difficult road. And at the end is when they discover, okay, uh, we discovered God knew what he was doing. You have stories where you've seen that. I have stories where I've seen that. And what it, one of the reasons it becomes important for what we're talking about here is if we don't see our need, if the people we love don't see their need, they're never going to go to Jesus at all. We have to see that. But they also have to see that Jesus is the answer to that and not getting rules 
It's not following rules. It's following after Jesus, no matter where he takes us. And so what we see is here in this passage is he's talking to a group of people who are not following him. They're following after rules. And he's saying, there are other people who are beginning to follow after me, and I'm going to give the kingdom to them. So Matthew chapter 21, verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, Jewish leaders, and given to a people producing its fruits. Who is that? Chapter 21, verses 31 to 32 says this. Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. So Jesus makes it about faith, not about works, not about rules, but about faith of saying to Jesus, I want you. I need you. So what that means is in your own personal life, instead of saying, oh, I need to... I need to find those five. Where's that five steps I found on Instagram about improving this part of my life? I need to do the five steps. No. I go to Jesus. That's where I go. That's where my brokenness is healed. Five steps may help after you're, if, once you're at the feet of Jesus, but it's not about the five steps. But here's what it also means, and this becomes a, a big part of what Jesus is talking about here. He says, you shut the door to the kingdom in people's faces, to the Pharisees. Why? Because they, say, they think it's about rules. And so when people come and say, I can't keep the rules, they'll say, well, here are some more rules. Go keep those. And then maybe you'll figure out how to keep the ones you can't keep already. They're closing the door in people's faces. But Jesus is opening the door. He says, I am the door. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. That's how we come to the Father. And when you understand that, when people come to you and they're in the midst of brokenness, you don't give them rules. You give them Jesus. You give them Jesus. So the person who's writing this is a guy by the name of Matthew. And if, you, uh, if, you've, if you've watched The Chosen or if you've read your Bible, you know that Matthew was a tax collector. And, uh, and he's the one who wrote this account. And Matthew, in one night of his life, did more for the kingdom of heaven than all of these Jewish leaders did in a lifetime. Now, here's what I mean by that. Is when Matthew became, when Jesus came and found Matthew, brought him to himself. Matthew's life has changed. And so Matthew throws a party for Jesus, where Jesus is the guest of honor. That means all eyes are on Jesus. This is my party, but Jesus is the guest of honor. And who does he invite? Well, he's, he invites Jesus, who's this holy man, his apostles. And he invites a bunch of sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes for this party, for this holy man, right? And so the, the Jewish leaders are standing outside, kind of like, this is wrong. How in the world can Jesus, who's a holy man, be with these kinds of people? And so they ask the question, and Jesus comes up, he makes this response. He says, it's not the righteous. I haven't come to save the righteous, but I've, called to come, I've come to call sinners to repentance. It's not those who are well who need a doctor. It's those who are sick. So Jesus says, I've come for them. That's why I've come. Now, it's not that the Pharisees and, and teachers of the law did not have sin, and they didn't need a doctor. There was something about their ailment that did not allow them to see how desperately they needed Jesus. So Jesus, so Matthew, this one night, does more for the kingdom of heaven by throwing a party with Jesus at the center than any of these Pharisees had done in their entire lifetimes of rule keeping. Does that make sense? More people were brought into, before the face of Jesus. So what does this mean? Well, you know. 
What does it mean about our assumptions? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? If you think, I keep the rules. It's not about the rules. It was never about the rules. It wasn't even about the rules in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is one long story about how people couldn't keep the rules. That's what it's about. And so when we get to the New Testament, Jesus is here. That's the answer to the problem. What do we do when we can't keep the rules? And we know it is we go to Jesus. So Matthew didn't give his friends who came to this party rules and say, I've become a Christian. Here's some rules for you. He gave Jesus. And he brought them into the presence of the one who gave, gives life to those who are brokenhearted and weighed down by the burdens and cares of sorrow and guilt and shame and fear. So sometimes you're, you may think, I don't, I don't really know how to share my faith because you think it has to be really technical. Let me give you a very simple way of, of thinking about it. Is The story is this. Here's how I have messed up and failed. And then here's how Jesus has met me to forgive me in his grace and his mercy and uh, his love. And here is how Jesus is healing me of all the broken things and the sinful things in my life. And here's how my life is being transformed as a result. My brokenness, Jesus and his forgiveness, his healing that's taken place, and then uh, growth as a result of that. Jesus accepts us where we are, but he doesn't leave us where we are. But that's not the whole story. The whole story is that people need to hear when you're sitting down with them usually is they're not alone. One of the best things you can do for people is to help when you, they, you sit down with them and they tell you how broken they are and something that they're failing at in their lives is not to show them, here are the rules that will help you with this area of your life, is for you to stop and say, here's where I struggle in the same way, for them to know that they're not alone. They're not the only one because that's the way we feel in our sin. Rebecca learned this when uh, her first year in, at Clemson when she was a student. Uh, she gave me permission to tell the story, so you know I wasn't eavesdropping. You know This is the story. Um, she had a friend named Evelyn, and uh, Evelyn had seemed to have everything together. She did. She, you know, makeup was together, clothing was together, life was together. Uh, she was very involved in the campus ministry they were in. She taught a Bible study. So Evelyn was fantastic. And so Rebecca and Evelyn were sitting down. They were out to dinner one night, and Evelyn started talking about her history, uh, her history with substances. And uh, as she's sitting there with Rebecca, Rebecca would, would admit to you that she has a history with substances through high school and into college. And she's sitting with this person who's being upfront and open and honest about her own brokenness. And Rebecca, everything Rebecca said, I need to hide this from everybody. I need to hide it from everybody because what if they knew? And to have this person sitting across from her who admitted her brokenness, and where Jesus had met her in forgiveness and love and grace and had begun to heal her and was beginning to transform her life, Rebecca looked at that and she realized it's not about the rules and I don't have to be perfect. It's about meeting Jesus and Jesus meeting us in our brokenness. And he accepts us for who we are. He doesn't leave us where we are. He grows us. He heals us. He transforms us. But he meets us in our brokenness. Can you do that and be that kind of be that kind of vulnerable with people of being open and honest about your own brokenness to help introduce them to Jesus who heals broken people. He's the great physician, and that's the only place that takes place. So 
back to our Bible study leader at the beginning, Julie. So I'm sitting down and I'm, I'm talking with Julie and, and say, tell me about the, the, your Bible study and everything. And, and uh, they get Julie to pray after every single study. And the reason they do that is because uh, we're all terrified to pray in public, aren't we? Because we, we got to get the right words, we got to say the right things, and maybe if I said the wrong thing in prayer, people are going to judge me, and, and we're not really talking to Jesus anymore, we're actually talking to the people in the circle with us, or whoever we're praying with. And so they get Julie to pray, and so Julie just, you know, she said, okay, I'll pray. And so she prayed for a little bit, and at the end of the prayer, uh, she said the amen, and she lifted up, and there were a couple of women in the in the study that had been there, and they had tears coming down their, like, not, not ugly crying, but mascara run, you know, wiping, the, wiping their eyes. And uh, Julie thought she'd said something that maybe triggered them, you know, like got, touched a nerve. And she said, oh, my goodness, what did I say? And they said, no, 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 no. It, you didn't say anything bad. It was so beautiful the way that you prayed. And it was an interesting thing because Julie's just like, I just prayed. I didn't, I didn't think about anything that was beautiful. And I said, Julie, no, I don't think what you realize is you know how to pray. And I went through her life with her for just a little bit. I said, uh, you've known deep grief many times in your life. Because I know her, and she's been through some deep grief. And even in the past couple of years before this Bible study, she'd been through some things that were really hard, grief. I said, you almost lost your life a couple of years ago. Um, and you were in the hospital, and they were having to do these procedures. And I said, and you're pretty open about how broken you are. You, you've come across as a kind of a humble person. You know, you're, you're, you're self-deprecating, but you, you recognize the broken things in your life. And I said, what that means is you know how to talk to a God of grace because you've been on your knees, you've been on your face, you have been through the hard things, and that has improved, uh, that has made your relationship with God what it is. And so when you pray, you're just praying from your heart, from your own brokenness and God meeting you in the midst of it. So you know how to pray. And I said, and this is part, this is part of why God is in, in your 60s calling you to lead a Bible study because you know him. You've walked with him. You've walked with him through really broken things. And it's not about you being whole. It's not about you being right. It's not about you keeping rules. It's about the fact you've gotten to the point where you know Jesus is all I have and Jesus is all I need. And that's the point we need to get to. And that's what he's calling us to do. Not rules, not uh, Jewish leaders, because uh, he says those are the ones he's standing against. They're not going to enter in. But the person who can acknowledge their sin and acknowledge their brokenness and come freely before God and say, Jesus is all I have. That's all we have. And that's all I have. Let me pray for us.